The practice of pediatrics is changing rapidly. New ideas for payment models and care delivery models come and go. Navigating through those changes can send a practice or healthcare institution on a tangent that leaves the providers and staff feeling like they don't have a compass. It is important during these times to have someone who can help put the new changes into context and help us to remain grounded on what is most important, providing the best patient care possible. This is a Cook Children's Podcast. Welcome to Pediatric Leadership, the New Medicine with Dr. Justin Smith, helping physicians become innovators in medicine. Now, here's Dr. Justin Smith. Dr. Frank McGee is a pediatrician in the Cook Children's Magnolia Clinic. He practices in an office that has its roots in an 80-year tradition of providing excellent patient care to the children of Fort Worth. He has seen many changes in medicine, but still believes that the heart of pediatrics lies in his connection with families. Dr. McGee, thanks so much for coming on today. You're welcome. So just tell me a little bit first about like your career with Cook. How long have you been there? How long have you been in the practice that you're in now? I started working for Cooks in 1993, and I was a hospitalist until 1998. Then I worked at the Southwest Center until 2007. And when Dr. Richardson retired, um, I was asked to take over his practice or move into his practice. And I've been with the practice since then. So you've been with Cook since the early days of sort of coming together as a big organization, I guess, then. I was one of the first five doctors hired by the Physicians Network, I think. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes during that time as far as the practice of medicine and uh, being involved in sort of an organization like Cook. What are some of the big changes you've seen during that time? One of the things that's changed a lot is the medical record. So when I was first practicing, a typical sick visit had a diagnosis and a plan uh, for an outpatient visit. And now there's at least two pages of additional information, including patient's problem list, their medications that they're on chronically, the other physicians that they've seen. And we have the potential with our medical record to actually correspond with all those individuals at each visit. So huge improvement in documentation. Um, with electronic records, you can actually read my documentation. I think the other big thing is there's been more and more involvement, especially with high-risk or chronically ill kids, where the care of the patient is influenced to a great deal by the third-party payer or third-party administrator approving or disapproving without ever having seen the patient what my plan of care is. Now, some of that's proved with the expanded records, so they can kind of tell what I'm thinking. But this morning, I ordered a CT scan on a patient, which I documented very carefully, a history in the progress note. Their third-party administrator wanted more information about how bad the headaches were before they would approve the procedure. Certainly, that can lead to some frustration on the side of providers because you're spending time uh, not doing direct patient care and doing other things to get what you feel is important for, for your patient to get accomplished. Right. And it seems to me that a lot of times the decisions are strictly financial based and have no, we've lost the fact that we're taking care of people. So, you know, when I take my labs to the vet, they get really good care because I'm paying, you know, I get to decide, am I going to pay for this or not? And the patient's family sometimes are kind of cut out of that. Is this worth it or not? The insurance company is deciding, not the parents. Sure. So that's fairly frustrating. Going back to your comment on the medical records, you know, I, the practice that I grew up going to. So I have a copy of my my medical record that they sent with me when I moved over here to Cook. And uh, the first, you know, like 10 years of my life, so it would have been, you know, early 80s, it's all rice paper and pen, written mm-hmm. in pencil. And it is, it may, you know, have a note or two about what my mom said when she took me in and have a diagnosis. And maybe they wrote the medicine they prescribed, maybe they didn't. Uh, so right. it's, it's, it is a lot different. There's less paper in my whole chart 
then I probably generate in a checkup or pretty close to it. I think that's that's very true. So, you know, I think as we're seeing more third parties get involved in sort of the medical care, I think sometimes there's a feeling of helplessness in that. But I know for you, like advocacy and sort of maybe not fighting for your patients is the right word, but, but definitely advocating for them to get what they need is really important. So I'm sure you you know, get on the phone and have the conversation and really, really try to work out to get what your patient needs. But also, I think there's a little bit of sort of uh, learned helplessness in our field as far as just saying, well, the insurance company said they wouldn't cover it, so I guess they won't. Do you feel like that's becoming more of a problem as well, just over the years of being sort of beat down by the time it takes? Yeah, and, and I think some of that is we have to clarify with families that they're either employer or themselves have retained the insurance company. And I, from the insurance company's perspective, am an expense. And so I'm not allied with Blue Cross, or I don't mean to pick on Blue Cross, but whatever insurance the family has, they are not uh, cooperating with me and I'm not, I don't have any agreement to cooperate with them. So sometimes for real chronically ill families, if the insurance decision for coverage or not doesn't make sense, I will actually have the family call their HR department if it's a private insurance or their state representative if it's a government-sponsored plan. And sometimes I've even suggested they take the patient with them to roll the wheelchair or the hospital bed into the representative's office to see why this person needs oxygen at home and how devastating it's going to be if Medicaid denies it, just for example. Yeah. So, so I think we have to advocate, and I also think we have to empower the parents to realize that, that really we're an advisor to the family. We're not the heroes of the family, and they have the really a a strong voice to advocate for their own children. That's also true with rare disorders in terms of parent support groups. So there's a huge, you know, online presence already out there to help parents advocate for their own children. Yeah, and I love that you use the term empower because I think that's, we as physicians can only do so much and can only know so much, you know. I think you couldn't be expected to know all the details of some rare syndrome. And I think we're getting better as physicians at sort of acknowledging that and saying, allowing the patients and their families to be somewhat the expert on their condition, especially for those things that are really rare. And then we can come along as support and empower them and help them to get the things that they need. Uh, but the reality is, as the sort of fund of knowledge grows for medicine, there will be plenty of things that our patients know as well or better than we do uh, going right. forward. Right. And along those lines, the, the whole resistance to vaccines has become, you know, sort of an epidemic in my career. I tolerate families making a decision to do unusual vaccine schedules. I certainly don't advocate it or admire it. Um, That kind of started with uh, families that were Christian scientists or for various reasons refused that intervention. And it has evolved into so-called modified vaccine schedule, uh, autism phobic schedules, the Scandinavian vaccine schedule, and so on. But really, you know, the thing that is hysterical to me is most families, you know, tell me that they want to be careful with their vaccines and they want somebody who's carefully thought out the uh, risk and benefits. And, you know, it's sort of absurd if you've been through medical training and a pediatric residency to think you would do anything without thinking about the risk and benefits. So it's almost an insulting comment. My usual response to families who say that is giving vaccines is not my hobby. This is my full-time job. And, you know, I've been doing it for years, Um, which, you know, again, can come off as defensive, but it's certainly not that we take anything. If we start with the Cook's corporate promise, every child is sacred, nothing I do for any of my patients, if I thought it was harmful, I would suggest 
And, you know, if there's unknown harm or the parents are reporting unusual side effects, I would certainly take what they're saying at face value. So I think it's very important to listen to the families when they give you feedback about what's happening. Yeah, and then listen and then put it in the context of sort of the fund of knowledge that you have and the experience of, you know, the many kids that you've seen uh, over your career, but helping them sort of translate what they're reading and and learning about online or put it into context um, because, you know, unfortunately, not everything that you see online obviously is is the gospel truth in a sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you take what patients are saying at face value and address their concerns as real concerns and try to address that with science, it's actually a learning opportunity. I think it makes me a better doctor than just saying that's ridiculous. It's a Chagas disease, you know. For sure. I'd also like to talk a little bit about your sort of different roles in leadership over your career, because I'm sure you've held several in the time that you've been at Cook, and, you know, maybe highlight some of the ones that you found particularly valuable, and then maybe talk about how leadership has changed for you over a career in pediatrics. I think at Cook's, you know, the physician leadership is very important. We sort of have a tradition of rotating leadership positions, which does several things. It lets everybody know how it's working. It lets Cook's sort of expand their mission with the doctors by being involved in decision making and it again is a sign of sort of volunteerism for the good of the whole system yeah and i think you know just our presence on the board and everything else allows us to put the patient first all the time you know and it's not it's very rarely do i hear a decision or really never that I hear a decision that's purely financial or purely administrative because there's always somebody in the room sitting at the table who sees patients every day and can say and can put that into context and think, why well, I wouldn't want that done to my patients. And so it gives us sort of a voice to advocate for them in those in those rooms. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really a, a very good sign that there's such a large number of physicians on the system board. And of course, the physician network is completely, the board is completely controlled by physicians. Obviously, we need help, and I'm grateful for the help from all, all different kinds of business disciplines. But um, I think it is very a very good sign that doctors have that much leadership capability. One of the things that I've seen from you as well that I've been very impressed with, and part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you today is I know you've had a very and continue to have a very successful, busy practice. But I've also seen that you know one of my friends who I went to resident with, Joyce Rafferty, has joined your group and sort of how you've taken the group on and really sought to elevate care. Tell me a little bit about that transition for you towards, um, Mm -hmm. you know, not just fighting for your own practice growth, but really bringing, you know, sort of a whole practice along with you. Tell me how that transition has happened. That probably started with the hospitalist group where it occurred to me very on in the hospitalist group that a patient that we see is not a surgery patient or a pulmonary patient or a hematology patient. It's really everybody's patient. We all are seeing the same patients. That's the first thing. The second thing is, when I was alone at Dr. Richardson's in 2008 and 2009, it was so busy and the burden of work was so high that I would actually have nightmares that I was the only person in Fort Worth that could treat an ear infection. (laughs) And there would be lines of, you know, 80 kids out the door with ear infections waiting for me to treat them. So I think a recognition that I don't have to do everything, and then a recognition that there's too much pathology for any one person or group to take care of. And then the third thing is, it doesn't hurt me if somebody sees you as a competent pediatrician to manage their asthma, especially with our electronic record. 
so we're all in this together and we're all taking care of patients together and if there's 300 pediatricians working hard for kids the kids are going to be better than if there's just me trying to foil away at all the pathology in fort worth sure and so what do you see sort of the, your future leadership over the next few years like do you have sort of certain things that do you set internal goals or what do you do to sort of continue the legacy that you've set up this, thus far how do you continue that on through the next few years of your career Setting up this podcast, I'm really grateful for you because you gave me a little chance to do some research and thinking about that exact thing. Um, I think it's unconscious that I want the patients I'm caring for if I evaporated from the planet to get good care if I wasn't here. So I want to have partners that are smart and competent. I want cooks to be successful and be able to recruit a doctor to replace me. Personally, I feel like I'm just coming into my young adulthood. <laughs> so so my, ne- my next chronological birthday would be 65. But I think in many ways, I feel more present and emotionally mature than I've ever felt in my life. And so I don't really anticipate stopping working. Having said that, I'm human. And one of the reasons I changed from the inpatient service, the hospital group, to the outpatient world is literally it was taking me more than one day to get over a, a busy night shift. So one of our shifts was 6 p.m. to 9 a.m. And it would take me till 24 hours later to get over that. And of course, working tired is not productive. My current job, I'm 8.30 to 4.30. We use the hospital service for inpatients. And I really feel like at this pace, I could go on for a, a long time, sort of parenthetically one day at a time so today's work today and looking up today's questions today and not kicking things down the road to be dealt with and i know your uh, your practice and your patients are appreciative of that because they want you around taking care of them and taking care of their kids as you pointed out earlier i have a few great grand patients that i'm taking care of so the grandparents were pediatric patients in dr richardson practice and that's and then I have a lot of grand patients that I take care of, where the parents were either my patients or Dr. Richardson's patients, and that's I consider that an incredible honor sure. to be involved in families for more than one generation. And that's something until you mentioned it, I'd never thought of. But there are some who maybe don't appreciate the opportunities having a little bit of segregation of the care where you're in the office and you've got the hospitalist, and how that might actually allow you to practice longer than you could have back in the days where you had to do everything and you had to be the office doc and the hospital doc and go to deliveries and everything else. And I think that that definitely shortened careers um, relative to what, you know, you've kind of made a transition a while ago. But, you know, even potentially, if you needed to, could scale back even further because you do have a great group there that could help you out um, if you needed to physically later on. That's that's a really cool opportunity, I think. Um, You know, the other reflection on that is I'm not sure that I would be happy not working Dr. Shret and I have talked about this before, where I feel most myself when I'm working, which yeah. may be a disease, you know? Right. <laughs> there may be some pathology there, for sure. Yeah. But, and then the other issue is, which is kind of interesting, I actually did a PubMed search and, a, and an Amazon book search on physicians working after 65, and the search was empty. Wow. So there's very little data on doctors working after 65. It's interesting to me that you don't have to take your retirement distributions until you quit working for Cooks if you continue work. So the 70-and-a-half-year-old IRA distributions is exempted if you continue to work. The other thing that's interesting is Cooks does a mental status exam on their physicians at 70. 
So I had my annual checkup with my doctor this year, and I said, I think when I turn a certain age, I'm going to have to have I'm healthy to work or not. And you know, one of the things I like about Cook's Network is they kind of support me and make sure I don't go out on a limb, which sometimes I don't like when I get corrected. So it would horrify me to be working and not realize that I wasn't competent to work. So I like the fact that Cook's makes us prove we don't we're not contagious to our patients sure. makes us vaccinate ourselves so we're safe for our patients and then you know has mandatory neurophys- neuropsychiatric exams at age 70 which occupational health does sure. so I'm going to have to kind of prove I'm competent to keep working if I keep working well we all know you're still really sharp and on the ball as far as your research and everything else so we appreciate all that you've done for Cook as a system and I appreciate you being candid about that transition and just the difficulties that may lie in the future. And I I hope that the listeners out there who are in that stage of the career, who are looking for that on the horizon, can see that things may change, but if you are anticipating the change and you prepare yourself for it, you can actually stand to benefit from the change if you do so. So I'd like to give you any last thoughts before we close off, but I just really appreciate you coming on. As I said earlier, I really appreciate you asking the questions and being interested in this. Um, Thank you for your interest. All right. And if you want to check out this podcast notes, you can go to checkupnewsroom.com slash pediatric leadership. And there are several other podcasts leading up to this one talking about various stages and careers. And once again, Dr. McGee, thank you for coming on. Thank you. You can find more episodes, or if you'd like to suggest a segment, go to checkupnewsroom.com slash pediatric leadership.